Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Miller. I'm so glad you're here with us again this week. We've got a really special episode. Our guest today is Dr. Jeff Oakson, who is an expert on all things TMJ related. He's going to talk with us a little bit about various temporomandibular joint disorders and how these apply to orthodontists. And I think you're going to find this to be a very enlightening and educational interview I certainly learned a lot, and even as I was going back and editing this and listening to it again, I just picked up some more great information. So this is definitely one to to bookmark, to listen to a few times if you need to. We're going to keep the introduction short. I'm still on the road traveling a bit here, so we'll jump right into the interview with Dr. Oakson. Dr. Jeffrey Oakson has dedicated his career to educating students, residents, and clinicians in the areas of occlusion, temporomandibular disorders, and orofacial pain. He has been a full-time faculty member at the University of Kentucky for 44 years. He's recognized worldwide as an authority in the field of TMD and orofacial pain, lecturing in every state in the USA and 54 different foreign countries. His textbooks have been translated into 11 foreign languages and have become a standard for teaching throughout the world. He is a highly sought-after speaker and has given more than 1,200 invited lectures across the world. In addition to his two textbooks, he has more than 220 publications in scientific journals. He's the director of the Orofacial Pain Center at the University of Kentucky, which he founded in 1977. Dr. Oakson is active in many national and international organizations and is past president of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. He's also a founding diplomat and twice past president of the American Board of Orofacial Pain. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast, Dr. Oakson. Thank you, Lance. Thanks for the opportunity to speak with you. Uh, I have to ask here, are, are you also a University of Kentucky basketball fan? Oh, you have to be if you're at the University of Kentucky. No <laughs> question about it. I, I get to every game I can go if I'm not traveling. Good. Well, you know, I'm a Tar Heel, and I have to say the two games we had against uh, the Wildcats this year were, were both amazing games. The first one that you guys won was probably my favorite game of the whole year, even though we lost. And then the <laughs> second game in the tournament uh, went our way as well, luckily. Yeah, we're still licking our wounds from that second game. I don't understand. <laughs> I was at the first game. It was an exciting one. That was that was fantastic. But you know, this also means that we share, you know, a hatred for uh, Duke University, probably going back to uh, you know Leitner and the Stomp and and, and all that. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Well, I'm I'm so glad that we have you on the uh, podcast today. You know, this is a topic that a lot of people have questions about, and I have a feeling that many of my questions are going to be maybe poorly worded or overly simplistic. If, that, if that's the case, feel free to rephrase the question or answer in any way that makes sense to you as we go along here. Okay, doke. Uh, let's begin by telling the listeners a little bit about your, your clinic at uh, the University of Kentucky, uh, the residency program that you have at the university there, and kind of what you're up to. Sure, that's great. I, I had the opportunity to be a full-time faculty, and as you said, 1974 I started, and, and they wanted me to teach in the area of occlusion which I thought was a reasonable thing to do. So I started teaching occlusion. And if you happen to be around, or those of those who happened to be around in the mid-70s, there was the, the predominant concept was that if people had facial pain, it's because their bite was off. And so we didn't spend a lot of time <clears throat> correcting occlusion uh, to solve pain problems. Well, <clears throat> that's what I was taught. 
That's why I started teaching. And then I started to realize that there were some good responders out there as far as patients are concerned, but some people did not respond. And as I was trying to get answers to why they didn't respond to improvement in their occlusion, <clears throat> there wasn't a whole lot in the literature or in the science or whatever. So I started the clinic in 1977 at the University of Kentucky for the non-responders, if you will, people that had, you know, what we used to call TMJ, and, and yet their bite was pretty good or corrected, didn't make a difference. Well, <clears throat> that grew in 1977 into a graduate training program in about 1985. And so we took our first full-time resident in the late 80s, and now we've had, we have a program, we have one-year fellowships, two-year CODA-approved programs. The Commission of Dental Accreditation is now approving programs in oral, oral facial pain. We were one of the very first to be approved. Um, and three-year master's degree. So I've now had a total of about 55, I believe it's 55, minimum, it's maybe it's 59 full-time residents from 25 different countries. And when we started the program, I thought we'd be dealing just with occlusion and jaw function and, and muscles and joints, and it keeps expanding, expanding. So it's truly more of an oral facial pain clinic. And because we've been around a while, it is a tertiary pain center, which means our average patient that we see has had about four years of pain before they arrive. So they're complicated. And so we've developed several other programs. We've got a psychology program. I've got a clinical psychologist I've worked with for 30 years, and and he has a whole psychology program. So we're training psychologists about the uniqueness of face pain. We have a physical therapist there on a PhD program in physical therapy. So we have dentists, oral facial pain, dentists, psychologists, and physical therapists jointly seeing patients at the same time in the same clinic. And it's turned, you know, it's a it's a multi-professional clinic, which is really what needs to happen when you start dealing with chronic facial pain. And that's probably not what your listeners are most interested in. I appreciate <laughs> that. But it does give you insight where I'm coming from. And and now we can focus away to where your listeners may be more interested. Sure. I've heard Howard Ferran talk about theories of occlusion and TM function being kind of like religions, that there's there's all these opinions and they're all very tightly held. But actually, I kind of think that orthodontists, the average orthodontist, has kind of a benign disinterest in some of these things. The, their philosophy might be something like, you know, except in the extreme, orthodontics doesn't help or hurt TMJ function or dysfunction, so we'll just focus on creating a beautiful smile. But in your opinion, how can a doctor be a TMJ-friendly orthodontist. Yeah, I actually, as you might remember back in your profession, or maybe the history-wise, it, it started out that we were looking at this TMJ stuff, and then it looked like orthodontists were causing all the problems. And a couple of lawsuits came out or whatever. It really got the orthodontist's attention. Then the literature came out and said, you know, it doesn't seem like orthodontics is a major contributing to TM disorders. If you follow a group of individuals who have had orthodontics and, and sex and age match them to a group of controls that never had orthodontics 10 years after ortho, uh, orthodontics. There's no difference in the TM disorder. So, so the orthodontists have sort of taken the back, many orthodontists have sort of taken the back, back side and saying, okay, let's just do the, the uh, orthodontics and not consider much about joint position and such. Well, I think, I think the reason for the fact that there isn't a lot of extra TMD in populations of orthodontists is because orthodontists are dealing usually with young, growing individuals who have not really matured condyles yet. And if they get those occlusion in a reasonably stable position, condyles mature after they're finishing. Uh, and all that seems to work out well because of the wonderfully adaptability of the, of the, uh, of the human body, if you will. But I do believe orthodontists should be knowledgeable as to what are reasonably stable joint positions 
so that the treatment goals will incorporate putting occlusion, a stable occlusal condition, into a stable joint position, which likely will minimize, probably minimize, any, in, any further instances with TM disorders. The problem you face in this whole field of TM disorders is a large group of musculoskeletal disorders which have multiple etiological factors, and occlusion is only one. Right. And, 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 and in my textbook, we talk about oh, trauma causes TM disorders, emotional stress causes TM disorders, other sources of deep pain can cause the muscles to activate, uh, you've, you've got bruxing and clenching in these habits. Occlusion is one, but it's not always involved in every patient. So it's so it's it's a variable that I think we need to be appreci- appreciative of and maintain good reasonable stability during orthodontics and most patients because of the wonderful adaptability of the human body adapt to those positions and life is good for them. Yeah. And it seems that every patient has a different range of adaptability. You know, some are more flexible than others in terms of the you know syncing up of the occlusal position and the joint position but it, you know that being said are there certain types of malocclusions that predispose a patient to TMD more than others well it's that's one that's been investigated over and over again and and i would say that it's not impressive however well in my textbook i have i think it's i think i have eight different studies that show a relationship between patients with class 2 deep bites and clicking joints. On the other hand, I have five studies that showed no relationship whatsoever. So here's where you have a mixture of, of studies. And how can you have studies showing, looking at the same entity and finding different examples? And I think it's because of the other variables. Uh, we've got to look at orthopedic stability. And orthopedic stability, to me, would be when the teeth come together in a, sta- in a stable relationship, you want the condyles to be in a good what I call musculoskeletally stable position, a sta- stable jaw position. Now, in some deep bites, we accompli- the patient can accomplish that. In other deep bites, maybe they hit it on the front teeth too heavy and the jaw is placed into a different position. So it, the deep bite itself is a variable which seems to have some incidence of being a greater incidence of intracapsular issues. Now, we're not talking about muscle issues, intracapsular issues here. And yet it's not always the case because some deep bites still produce a stable posterior occlusal relationship when the condyles are in a stable relationship. So those patients are probably not vulnerable. They're not risk factors in those patients. But trying to figure out who they are is somewhat difficult because of variability and, and other things, activity, parafunction, how much are they putting their teeth together. Some of us do that a lot, some do it a little. In orthopedically unstable relationship, if you do that a lot, there may be risk factors to produce some of these kinds of conditions. Yeah. Sometimes I get a referral from a dentist where, you know, the patient has been told, you know, go see the orthodontist uh, and maybe they can do something about your jaw pain. Sometimes I see something that I think is a problem. I'll tell patients that fixing it, maybe they have a crossbite or they don't have any anterior guidance. And I say, okay, well, you know, that is an issue. And I think if we can get that issue resolved, it gives us the best chance for success. But but there aren't any real guarantees there. You know, what, what should we be telling patients about the ability of orthodontics to improve their TMD symptoms. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, Lance. Because we have some members of the orthodontic community who who believe that everybody needs ortho to get rid of their TMJ problems like that, and that's scary to me because that's only one little element of the situation. The first thing that has to be done is you have to identify where this pain's coming from, because there are many sources of pain in the face that have nothing to do with occlusion, nothing with jaw function, 
and yet we'll take these patients on as dentists trying to correct their occlusion and two or three years later have a beautiful occlusion, a nice aesthetic occlusion, nice aesthetic smile, and they still have the pain. Nothing more discouraging to the clinician as well as the patient to have that happen. So before we enter into the field of doing orthodontics for a TM disorder patient, we should have a good handle of what this pain is coming from. And TM disorders really is a musculoskeletal pain of the masticatory system, which means a person who has a temporomandibular disorder is going to have pain that emanates from the muscles or joints of the masticatory system. It's amazing sometimes people come into offices having pain. They can open, close, move the jaw anywhere they want to, and it does not influence the pain. You've got to be careful. Those are likely not patients who have true TM disorders. They have some other kind of pain condition, which is not going to respond to changes in the occlusion or musculoskeletal system. So, so the first thing is, is ask the patient, open, close, does the pain get worse? If they say no, I would not even consider orthodontics as part of the issue. The second thing is, let's say they open and close and they do have a lot of pain to open and close. Now, the next question is, is this oriented from the muscles or is this oriented from the joints? Because in my opinion, these are two separate entities. Muscle pain and joint pain are quite different. In fact, we now have a database in our, in our oral facial pain center. The database is about 6,500 consecutive patients. I think it's the largest database I know anywhere in the world of consecutive oral facial, oral facial pain patients. And when I look at that population and go back to survey them, 44% of the patients we see are there because of muscle pain as a primary complaint. Only 24% are there for with joint pain, which means muscle pain is twice as common as joint pain. And what's interesting about that concept is, is the way you treat muscle pain is different than the way you treat joint pain, in my opinion. And the rationale behind that is because the etiology and the management, etiology and, and the presentation and management of muscle pain, quite different than the etiology, pathology, and presentation of joint pain. So the next thing to do is to think, okay, the patient has pain to open and close. Is it muscle-related or joint-related? Muscle-related pain often has to do with overusing muscles. It has to do a lot more with stress. It has to do a lot of different factors that may not be influenced by ortho. Intracapsular issues may be if there's, in fact, a lack of harmony between a stable joint position and a stable, uh, and a stable occlusal position. What the orthodontist can do routinely in his or her practice is change people's occlusion to produce a more stable relationship. And therefore, if the etiology is that stable, if the etiology is an unstable relationship, then the orthodontist has an avenue to make a difference in this patient's life. But if the orthodontist starts, starts orthodontics in an already maybe stable system, the chance of having any change in TM disorders is pretty small. So, therefore, you wouldn't want to enter into that situation. Yeah. I'm always, if I'm honest, very wary of treating a patient whose chief and only complaint is TMD-related. I mean, I'd, I'd much rather prefer to have them have another compelling reason, aesthetics or whatnot, to undergo treatment. And then if we can improve their symptoms by, you know, improving their occlusion, that's kind of a bonus in my mind because I'm always a little bit unsure you know, even if I make this change, am I going to make enough of a change to get within their envelope of adaptability? Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent approach because the, if the patient comes to the clinic with two motivations, two goals, one is aesthetics and one is function, you have the ability to correct the aesthetics. So that's really nice. And if you, if, and hopefully, as you said, hopefully during the period of time during the ortho, uh, orthodontics, when you establish the aesthetics and stable relationship, the TM disorder resolves 
great. But, but, but being cautious about that relationship bringing about pain relief is, is, is a little risky. No, it's very risky, I'd say. So, <laughs> so if, if I had a patient who came in and said, no, I've got TM disorder, I've got pain, can you, can you orthodontics help? The way, you, the way I would resolve that one, first of all, I would look to make sure it is a musculoskeletal problem of the masculatory system. It's not some other condition. Common conditions like cervical pain refer to the face. Common conditions like neuropathic conditions. Common conditions, sinus infection, ear infections. Kind of, there's a lot of different, different pain conditions that show up in the face. One of my textbooks is just on oral facial pain. It's just all the other things that we dentists need to be aware of. So the first thing we do is make sure it is musculoskeletal. Now, if you think it is, then I would take and make and temporarily establish a stable relationship like you use an occlusal appliance. Put a stable relationship in a musculoskeletal stable position and see the patient's response. If this patient is a non-responder to an appliance which introduces a stable bite on a temporary base, then likely that patient's going to be a non-responder to changing, orthodont- changing the teeth orthodontically. If they respond beautifully, you have more clinical evidence that change in the occlusion may make a difference. It's not, it's not as black and white as that, but it does give people insight as to whether the orthodontics will really be indicated for this particular pain patient. I think, that's, I think that's great advice. I really like that. What would you recommend that an orthodontist evaluate in an initial clinical examination for a non-symptomatic patient? Sure. Yeah, I, I think we owe it to our patients who come into an orthodontic practice to do a superficial examination, ask the right questions. And, and there's like, I have about 10 survey questions, if you will, that could be placed in a form. I've got that in my textbook, my TM disorder textbook, where you just ask the question, does it hurt to open? Does it hurt to close? Does it hurt to chew? Or is there, is there clicking, popping in the joints? You know, do you wake up in the morning with more pain? Simple questions that could be put into a history that a parent or a patient could check and when you start seeing positive findings, at least you're more aware that there could be some issue with jaw function. The second thing I think orthodontists do an elaborate workup treatment plan is beautiful. But one of the things I think you should also do is palpate a few muscles, look for range of movements, and feel joints. Say you palpate the master and temporalis muscle for any pain or discomfort. You look for range of opening. I mean, even a three-year-old, excuse me, even a five-year-old can open almost 40 millimeters in most patients. So, so look to see if they're opening well. Is there pain to opening well? Is there clicking, popping in the joints? You really ought to have that in your records because if you have clicking, popping in that joint, let's say you get a, a young adolescent and he or she's clicking, popping, but it's, but it's not, they're not even aware of it or it's not painful, then you start the ortho and that click gets worse. All of a sudden, you've just caused this click <laughs> where instead you can go to the mom or the dad or would say, you know, that click was here beforehand and give a little description about why it clicks which is about a third of the population, and actually in the young adolescents, it's probably closer to about 20% of the adolescents will have a clicking joint. They need to know that before you start. You, you can make them aware of that. It doesn't mean there's going to be a major problem, but there is a little bit of a disc that's a little bit looser in there. So you lay, you're now, you lay it out early on. You've made, that, you've made a statement that that's already there. You've noted that. It's part of your history. It's part of the examination. And you've identified that, but it doesn't always appear to be much of a risk factor for these, for these patients. But, but then you've made aware of it. So before you begin your, your ortho, you should have an assessment for how sound the system is working right now. So you can make judgment as to what happens. You know, if, you, if you're going to make some changes, what, are those, what could you expect those changes to produce? Right. I, th- I think you've really 
hit the nail on the head that I think most of the documentation probably in orthodontic offices is defensive, trying to kind of ward off these future uh, conversations. But, mm-hmm. but let's say let's say we find ourselves there. I mean, I think every orthodontist has. I certainly have where, you know, we've, we've begun treatment and either there wasn't a click to begin with or there was and it's gotten worse. And, you know, mom comes in very concerned standing there with this with her daughter you know, and, and kind of with this accusatory <laughs> look on her face. What, what, what do you think is, is a reasonable approach for that situation if an orthodontist finds himself in it? Yeah, exactly. When I have the opportunity to speak to an orthodontic group, and especially if I have a whole day and stuff, the whole last section is exactly that question. What happens if, if TM disorders begins in the process or start showing up in the process of orthodontics? What do you do? Well, there's a, there's a couple of general kinds of things I think about. First of all, I'm a firm believer that we want to establish a sound relationship between the occlusal, the final occlusion after ortho and the joint position. So I would be finding a musculoskeletal stable position in the joint and bring the teeth together and make sure you're online to get these teeth to fit together reasonably well in a musculoskeletal stable position, which to me would be a super anterior position with the disc proper interposed on the intermediate zone against the posterior slope of the eminence. Now, you're not going to be there in the middle of ortho. But you, but you want to be say look at the arches, say I'm getting close to that direction, and so I'm not going to leave the patient out left field, if you will, someplace with with some shift way off to the right or left or something like that. If you're going online that way, the next thing I think about is okay. The majority of these conditions start to show up as muscle function in most in most adolescents. I, I mean, there is intracapsular issues too, but let's just if it's muscle conditions, these patients can be treated very conservatively. We've learned over time, as well as with adults, with muscle pain, we're very conservative. We educate the patient, talk about the things that make muscles active more. We, in, in the young population, I'd be talking about chewing gum. I'd be talking about biting on pencils. I'd be talking about all these habits that stir up the, the muscle pain. And so make sure the patient's aware of that so that they can let the system rest because a lot of times they're not letting it rest. It's being activated at times, they're not even thinking about it. They're they're taking a test. They're clenching their teeth together and things like that. So we tell individuals keep the teeth apart, don't let the teeth touch unless you're going to chew, swallow, or speak, and all those things. And it's not easy to break those habits, but those habits are the first thing. A little bit of a mild anal. If there's a, if the pain condition is great, a little bit of mild analgesic like ibuprofen, as little as 400 milligrams of ibuprofen. A day or a couple times a day, you know, in, a, in, a, in an adolescent is usually enough to sort of break the pain cycle and quiet the pain down. And then, then what I do is I, with that bit of education and a little bit of mild analgesic, possibly if they if you think the pain level is that high, give them a week. Give them a week or two and let them come back. Don't stop your ortho. Just keep on doing what you're doing. Now, a week or two goes by. At that time, probably they're going to come back and say, how's your jaw function? They go, what, what are you talking about? You know, it's, it's like it was, you know, it's not a problem. Because mm-hmm. often it's transient. You're just coming and going with the situation. But let's just say a couple weeks go by and there's still a pain condition. Next thing I would look at is, is there is there an issue going on? And, and this is totally anecdotal. But I've seen patients who will be fighting their elastics. In other words, they've got interarch elastics and they're sitting there playing with them and fighting them, whatever. And I'll just say, can you take the elastics out for a period of a week or two without jeopardizing your anchorage? And just see what happens. Because sometimes that's the guilty party, at least my anecdotal, you know, I'm not an orthodontist, but this is what I've seen happen sometimes. So just take the elastics out for a little while and see. And if, the, if everything goes away, then maybe those muscles are happier. 
if in fact you put the elastics in, it kicks back in again. Now, you know, now you got a situation, is there something about Anchorage I could do without some elastics or whatever? Uh, if in fact you, you know, you take the last out and you're still having some discomfort and pain. Okay, you get to a point where you have to start saying, all right, we're going to have to treat this individual more like we would the adult population. And we're going to have to take a look at like at nighttime activities. Are they waking up with more pain? They may have to have some kind of little appliance that just may disengage the teeth a little bit. Uh, nothing's too sophisticated. I wouldn't take brackets off or anything like that, but you might take the arch wire off and take it to the next step and make a little, put a little something that might separate the teeth a little bit. Um, I'm not advertising anything, but there's a little device called a quick splint where you have a little, this little piece of plastic, you put a little impression material in it, it goes over the anterior, upper anterior teeth, it disengages all the teeth, they can wear that at nighttime, it doesn't interfere with the ortho, I'm sorry, it will interfere with the movement of those teeth, but it, but you, you know, you don't take everything all off, leave your sure. appliances in place, and let the patient go a week or two and see if that doesn't shut down. The beautiful part about the population that most orthodontists are treating, which is the adolescent, is they're 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 very adaptable and they get they 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 get sick quick and they get well quick. You know what I mean? They go through these transitions. So if you can do some very minor things like that, um, that makes a difference. On occasion, you stumble on a patient who really has other issues going on that make this even more difficult. And so, you know, we start looking at other factors that come in, like they're being bullied at school or they've got some depression and stuff. All of a sudden, these things step outside the realm of dentistry, but you start identifying these individuals who are struggling in their psychosocial history, if you will. Uh, and this gets real complicated then because we as orthodontists or dentists aren't man trained male to be psychologists. And yet part of pain is psychology. You know, sometimes, especially when it, when it starts to get overwhelming like that. So, so then you start thinking about is there, are there other issues here that have not been addressed? It could be addressed. It might quiet some pain condition downs. And, and that gets, that's an uncomfortable area to be as dentists, but yet it may very well be necessary to get a person well. Right. I think that certainly plays into a lot of our adolescent patients kind of daily life, these things. And, and what you're saying, I think is, is my experience too. I think your anecdotal experience about wearing elastics, I, I find that is a contributing factor a lot. I also agree that it can be transient. It can be a quick onset and a quick recovery. And then there's, a, luckily, it's, a, it's usually a smaller percentage of those patients where it, you know, becomes an ongoing problem. But, you know, that's always a, a tricky spot, I think, for people to find themselves in, especially if they don't have good answers. But I like, I think you've given some great suggestions here, and I'm going to check out this quick splint as well. That seems like a, an interesting option. You, you use the term orthopedic stability, and, and my understanding of that is that the occlusion is compatible with the joint position. But what about like a functional or a dynamic occlusion? Are, are, are things like canine or working guidance or you know, avoiding non-working interferences, uh, you know, putting the vertical forces on the molars and the horizontal forces on the incisors? Is that, is that an important part as well that orthodontists obviously should be looking at? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it is. I think... I think if we were to develop what would be the what would be the ideal occlusal relationship, and we look back to the biomechanics of what we know, uh, posterior teeth are the are the stronger teeth that accept the vertical loading of closure. So posterior teeth all contacting evenly simultaneously, cuss tip the flat surface kind of stuff. Anterior teeth are there for incising; they're there for guidance and such like that. And so, so the anterior teeth are going to be more for I. I you know, for eccentric movements and such like that. I think avoiding non-working contacts 
is a very important. Uh, there was a time where we thought nonwearing contacts were the big nemesis of creating all kinds of problems. Well, that's not true. However, what's interesting about how we look at this jaw function, nonwearing contacts could be a contributor in one particular way. Uh, let me let me back a little bit up. I think these teeth are contact evenly all the way around, right side, left side, posterior, and anterior teeth, a little lighter than the posterior teeth. When the condyles are in a musculoskeletal stable position, and what I define by that is, if you look at the temporalis, masseter, temporalis muscle, the masseter, and the medial pterygoid muscles, their directional pull would be to seat the condyle superiorly and slightly anteriorly against the posterior slope of the eminence. So I call that the musculoskeletal stable position. Therefore, if, and, if, and you can find this position by using a bilateral manipulation technique where you sort of seat the condyle up and slightly forward and bring the teeth together. I think when you're in that position, the teeth should all contact evenly simultaneously. When you go from side to side, we've had a concept in dentistry about canine guidance. And what I mean by that is if, if you take a look at, you know, the nathologist many years ago got together and said, okay, how should teeth contact side to side? We want to pick, there isn't any teeth in the mouth that accept horizontal forces well at all. All teeth are meant with the parallel structure to accept vertical forces up and down. They don't accept lateral forces. But so you say, okay, well, let's look at the teeth that could best accept that. Well, we looked at the canine. We said, look at the canine. I say, it's a great tooth. It's the longest root in the mouth. It's the best crown to root ratio. It's in cortical plate, not medullary bone. And, and importantly, it's furthest away from the force vectors, which means you can only find about a third amount of force on a canine can on a molar. So we established this concept in dentistry that canine guidance should be what our goal is. And it's a reasonable thing, except often patients or situations don't allow that. And if you take a look at the general population, I think there's four studies, there's three studies that I can reference looking at the, the prevalence of canine guidance in the general population. In one study, it was only tw- it was only sixteen percent. In another study, it was eighteen percent. In the most, it was twenty four percent. So, in, in the general population, let's say about one out of four of us have true canine guidance. What's the most predominant one? It's group function. It's canine picking up premolars and molars. Is there a difference in pathology of those? Probably not. But here's where it may become an issue: if a patient is left with an occlusion, and as they move over through the eccentric position through canine guidance or group function, and all of a sudden, the opposite side, the non-working side, starts to disengage the teeth on the, on the ipsilateral side. In other words, the guidance becomes the non-working contact. Mm-hmm. There's a different biomechanics that's set up, because when that happens, if, you're, if, you're, if the patient's moving to the left and the only the right side molar contacts, what happens now is you can no longer equally load the temporal manipulator joints. Because what happens is on the ipsilateral side with that contact, that condyle will actually come away. It can be actually distracted from the fossa, which means if the person decides to use their muscles in the right way, or maybe I should say the wrong way, they can actually sort of teeter-totter over the non-working contact and literally distract, take the condyle away from its, from its uh, articular disc and stuff. I look at that as a risk factor. For a TM disorder, doesn't mean they have to, but that to me is a risk factor. So, so I would not want to leave a patient with non-working side guidance because I think there's potentially risk factors. But the issue here is it's risk factors. It's never all or none. It's not like if you do this, the patient's going to have a terrible outcome. 
No, it's just right. a risk factor. The whole body is set up with risk factors. The more risk factors you leave, the more potential breakdown shows up. So, so, so uh, now, does that mean that, that have I sort of broke up, put down the concept of canine guidance? No, I think canine guidance is great. Yeah. Okay, but you'll be in an orthodontic situation or a prosthodontic situation where you can't get it. So I think canine, going group function, the premolars, molars, that's adequate and it seems to function well. But but avoid leaving a non-working side predominant contact. That's the guidance of the mandible. I think that's a risk factor. Yeah, I you know one thing that always makes me feel I guess a little guilty is when I finish a patient without good anterior guidance, whether. You know, it's a skeletal issue that we just can't overcome or, or sometimes it's compliance. You know, you've got these patients and they've been in braces for a long time and it comes to a point where you can't hold them hostage any longer. So you, you get them out of braces. But but when they don't have anterior guidance, I you know, I always feel I'm always concerned by kind of where this is headed. And so, that you know, I, oftentimes I'll try to give them nighttime splints. Do you think that's a reasonable you know option? Yeah, I th- here's the issue that you're facing there. You're guilty because of a concept we have in dentistry. Okay, now I understand that. However, do, does the concept have validity as far as who gets TM disorders or not? There's your real question. And, and the validity is not strong on that port. In other words, in other words, if you took all the patients you left with group function or not very good guidance, with, how many of those would end up with a TM disorder versus the ones you had? That, that data is weak, but it is a violation because, not a violation, it's a violation of a concept because we know that canines are good. Okay, now, the other issue, what about occlusal appliances? Well, I, this is interesting from our perspective. If you have an individual who has a bruxing habit, you know, they're, you know, they're going to show tooth wear or muscle pain, or maybe both, but typically one or the other, like that. So if that patient wakes up in the morning with tight muscles, a headache, jaws are tight, hard to open and close, yeah, they should have an appliance. Protect teeth. It protects, it sh- probably has the best ability to sort of minimize muscle activity at night, but not always shutting it down. The other, but there's, a, I have other group of patients who wake up perfectly normal in the morning and their pain is late afternoon. And I look at that as an entirely different condition because those are people who at the, at the end of the day and the stress and the fatigue, they're wearing their muscles out. They're putting their teeth together at, during the day, likely when they don't need to. And so these are people that we do behavioral things with. We don't make appliances for daytime activity. We teach them keep the teeth apart. We've got a whole protocol of three different sessions how we teach people to be aware of, of what they're doing with their teeth, puff a little air, keep the teeth apart, don't let them touch unless you choose or speak. And that actually has been shown in studies we've done to be more effective in reducing muscle pain than occlusal appliances. Because occlusal appliances don't stop us from clenching our teeth. We can clench on the plastic. Occlusal appliances do a nice job at nighttime when you can't convince people because their brain is someplace else to not put their teeth together. So I would, I would say making an appliance is okay. It, I don't think everybody needs it, but it's okay, and it protects the teeth, and it acts as a great retainer for you, too. Probably it keeps the teeth where they belong. Sure, sure, yeah. And I am more inclined, when I hear pain in the morning, you know, they wake up and their jaw is sore, certainly to me that, that's kind of the slam dunk, uh, you know, appliance might be uh, helpful for them. But you're right, it's, it's, you know, it's, not, it's not every patient. But are there any other kind of adjunctive therapies or appliances you feel have, have a place in the orthodontic office? Well, you know, there's, a, <laughs> there's always the interesting debate that you have as orthodontists about functional appliances, you know, and how much they can lend, improve, or increase growth or not or whatever. And I know that's it. When I, when I, get, when I have a privilege to be talking to an orthodontic group, that's one of the questions that always come up. And I, and I always answer it this way. I, I don't really know. 
I mean, when I go to ortho meetings, I see some individuals who just believe that functional appliances is the way to go and others that say, no, they don't work or they would have got the growth anyway if it was given some time and things like that. The thing that, the thing that I would say is, is if, if it, orthodontist is using a functional appliance, before they finalize the occlusion, they want to make sure that the condyle is in a musculoskeletal stable position. Now, so let's just say, for example, that they, they do get growth. And and now you've taken a class two individual, made a class one individual out of this because of growth. The condyle is a nice stable relationship. That's that's a beautiful scenario. But what we see is in a subpopulation of patients, when you bring them forward in a functional appliance for a given period of time, the inferior lateral pterygoid muscle can develop what's called a myostatic contracture, not contraction, contracture. And the word contracture means the painless shortening of the functional length of a muscle. And all muscles do this. So if that condyle is held forward, that lateral, the inferior lateral pterygoid will functionally shorten. It's like if you, somebody, if you broke your jaw and they wired your teeth together and you couldn't lengthen your elevator muscles for six to eight weeks, when you take the wires off, you can't open your mouth more than four or five millimeters because that's a functional contraction, contracture, excuse me, of the, of the elevator muscles. However, through what's called the inverse stretch reflex, that muscle will relengthen so that if you, if, the reason why that happens is because the Golgi tendon apparatuses may not be feeling enough pressure in the tendons and the, and the muscle spindles start to functionally shorten. So, it, so if that happens to an individual with a broken jaw, if they just start to tease the jaw open a little bit, put their fingers between their teeth and push a little, push a little, in a few days, weeks maybe, all of a sudden those muscles lengthen, 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 and they reestablish their position. Where that might fit in the orthodontic population is if you had an orthodontic patient that was in functional appliances for a prolonged period of time. When you take the appliance out, very often it feels like it's, it's nice and stable. But you don't know if it's really stable because it could be a condyle did not grow. The condyle's down the posterior slope of the eminence and being held with a shortened inferior lateral pterygoid muscle. If the orthodontist finishes the case there and then they let the patient go, and now their 16 and 17-year-old comes back, and they say, doctor, look at this. I've got two bites. I've got the place you put me. And then look, my jaw can go back here and I got a second bite. So now they have that Sunday bite, if you will. They got two dual bites. You say, where'd the dual bite come from? Well, it could very well be the condyle was not in a musculoskeletal stable position when the ortho was finished. And then over time, those lateral pterygoids said, oh, I can go back here. I'll go back here. And pretty soon the occlusion isn't established soundly in a more retreated position. And so, and that's, one of those big fears of orthodontists. Patients come yeah. back and say, look what happened to my bite, you know? Yeah. And, and, and they also come back at about 17 and say, now I'm going to college in about two more months. Can you, can you <laughs> fix this? Right? And you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is all ortho and orthodontic surgery and everything else, right? Yeah, so, hopefully, so hopefully they've scary. already left for college before they notice, and they're down there at the <laughs> University of Kentucky or something. Now, yeah. now, now, you, now you've done this before, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. You know, I had my, I, one of my professors was Dr. Lyle Johnston. And, oh, I know Lyle Johnston. And, you know, I, I loved his analogy for functional appliances, which I think is, is good. He, you know, he said it's like taking out uh, a mortgage on mandibular growth, and some patients are going to be able to pay it back with their growth. And some are not. And, uh, you know, depending on where, like you say, where that condyle sits and uh, where that fossa, you know, condyle relationship ends up at the end of treatment ultimately is going to determine, you know, how successful and how stable that, that ends up being. Well, you know, I, I, I love Lyle Johnson because he's always had some wonderful anecdotes about things like that. And he's probably exactly right. He's, yeah. I, I would agree with that. It's, it's the unpredictability that gets us in trouble, isn't it? 
if you yep. can predict it, we'd know which way to go, but sometimes you can't. Yeah, definitely. Well, Jeff, this has been uh, an awesome conversation. If people want to learn more about the topic of temporomandibular disorders, I would refer them to one of your books, which I think I mentioned to you. I, I refer to it's on my bookshelf. It's and frequently referenced uh, management of temporomandibular disorders and occlusion. I also know you have some online lectures and a mini residency. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about those offerings? Sure. I, I've got a webpage, which is jeffoakson.net, and I've got 33 one-hour-long uh, podcasts like this on different subjects. One happens to be on orthodontics and TM disorders, um, and the other ones are all about TM disorders and occlusion and oral facial pain of different varieties, a whole variety of things like that. Um, we also have we also offer a couple of programs at the university. Once a mini residency program, we do it once a year. It's a, it's actually forty hours of of didactic information Monday through Friday. We did that about three weeks ago and had a group of about sixty individuals from sixteen states and fifteen different countries. So we have people from all around the world. It's a it's a great international kind of exposure to to people from all around the world. It's, it's a lot of fun. We enjoy. It. We take people to our course track a little bit to get a flavor of. <laughs> Lexington, and we take them to a, one of the one of our little mansions around and stuff like that. So it's a nice social event too. Uh, we also offer a shadowing program. People can come spend one week with us, and they and they can spend the entire week just watching what we do on our residency program, where we have patients six half days a week. We have three seminars on pain, TM disorders, and and, a, and a update one. We have case conferencing and topic seminars, and so people get a flavor of what we think's going on and and how we manage pa- facial pain. So yeah. we welcome, welcome people to come by and visit with us. All that's on my webpage, too. You can look under CE. Yeah, I think that's really neat. And I love that people can kind of choose the approach that suits their learning style and, and schedule, I guess. Give us your website one more time. Sure. It's just Jeff Oakson with my J-E-F-F-O-K-E-S-O-N dot net. Dot net. But if you just Google my name, it'll show right up there. Perfect. Dr. Oakson, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's so generous of you to give us some of your time here on on a Sunday night. Uh, I just want to thank you so much. Thank you for asking me, Lance. It's been nice talking to you. I hope this is beneficial. Definitely. Thanks. Have a great night. We'll talk to you later. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode. 